we're working through the book of Exodus. And as David said at the start, today we're going to begin to look at the ten plagues. Um, we did a little bit of an introduction last week. If you weren't, uh, you, you know that you can catch up online. You might find that helpful. But the actual account of these ten plagues takes up four and a half chapters. So we, rather than look at them in detail and go through them one by one, we're going to spend the next three weeks thinking about what these plagues as a whole teach us about God. And we're going to think about three Ps, God's power, God's patience, and God's passion. So today we're going to think about God's power. And then over the next two weeks, we'll think about the other two Ps. And so we're going to kind of look at the plagues as a whole and, and think about it more thematically. Hopefully that will make sense. Uh, we didn't read from Exodus um, because it's four and a half chapters and we weren't sure which part to dip into. But it would be really helpful if you've got a Bible to keep it open. Um, the, the plague narrative begins halfway through chapter 7. And it, and it goes right on to the end of chapter 10 and into 11. And don't forget what David said, that Ewan recorded um, all of that reading. I've listened to it a couple of times. I took uh, Emma to the station in Sheffield early on Saturday morning, and it was the perfect length on the way back. Sheffield Station to our garage was the perfect length of Ewan reading Exodus 7 to like 10. So I really enjoyed that. I did have to sit in the car for about 30 seconds at the end, but uh, it was almost almost perfect. Um, do, do, do take advantage of that during the week, and it's really good to listen to it in one go and, um, and just hear the narrative kind of wash over you. So do um, take advantage of that during the week if you haven't done so already. So as I said, we're going to think about power today. What do you think of when you hear the word power we, we could have a little conversation about that couldn't we conjures up all kinds of things Jane and I were watching the new film Oppenheimer last night actually and th this film is all about the scientists who helped to create the first atomic bomb and the politicians who decided what to do with it and straight away, there's two different aspects of power there, isn't there? It made us both think about both the raw, explosive, destructive power of nuclear physics that I don't understand, but also the moral power and authority of presidents and governments. And it was a strong, even just watching that last night, it was a very strong reminder that this is not a safe subject but, a, but a, a spine tingling one in a sense, isn't it? The subject of power is, 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 a, is a big topic. Now, it, you'll be helped as well by the outline. You, you'll see from the outline that I've got two very simple questions this afternoon. Uh, the first is, how is God's power revealed in these plague narratives? And then secondly... My second question is, why is God's power a comfort to his people? Why, how is God's power revealed in these plague narratives? And then secondly, why is God's power a comfort? Here is a power 
that has the capacity to blow our minds and encourage our hearts. And I really want us to be persuaded today that this theme of the power of God can bring and does bring and will bring energizing comfort and solid hope to our hearts. Now, slides are ahead of me, but given that we're not going to dig into place in individual detail, we probably ought to begin first by getting an overview of what is going on in these spectacular chapters. We see here in the plagues the River Nile being turned to blood. Rampant frogs. Biting gnats. Swarming flies. A livestock pandemic. Skin diseases. Thunderous hail. Ravenous locusts. And pitch black darkness. You may have noticed, if you've got eagle eyes, that I only put nine plagues up here. This is because the tenth plague is in a class all by itself. And we're going to look at that tenth plague separately when we get to it. But it seems to me that the author here of Exodus seems to give us nine plagues first in three sets of three after which Pharaoh is still totally unyielding. And then comes the final deadly climax that delivers terrible judgment on Pharaoh while at the same time securing the, his grudging release of the Israelites, God's people. And remember, it's this last plague the, the death of the firstborn, it's this last plague rather than any of these other nine that God tells his people to remember forever and to commemorate every year in the feast of Passover. So the, these nine plagues, three sets of three, are kind of building us towards the summit of the actual exodus that we'll get to. Now, from a literary point of view, and you, you'll hear this in Ewan's dulcet tones if you listen to the reading, that this is, it, 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 this is written so brilliantly. It, it does take skill to record 10 similar things that happen back to back with enough v variety to keep the reader on the edge of their seat, doesn't it? Can you imagine that, trying to write 10 things, bu, 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 and to keep the reader's interest? And the, the variation is amazing. We've, we, it's long, long, short, 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 long. It varies the length. The, the, there's all kinds of things there. The plague number one, four, and seven all start with Moses going to Pharaoh in the morning. Second one, there's, there's an announcement. Third one, there's no announcement to Pharaoh. The plagues just seem to happen. So there, there's, a, there's a literary beauty about the way this is written. But we should also highlight the fact that there's definitely a sense of escalating intensity as we go through these plagues. And I don't want to underestimate this. These plagues are all bad, okay? Don't, I'm not saying that some of them weren't so bad. They, they're all bad. But there is a sense in which the first three are kind of shorter 
And we might say that they're more of an inconvenience, whereas the second set, they, they begin to become more intrusive and destructive. And by the time we get to the third set, they're even more devastating still. So as we go through the plagues, there's an intensification as we go through them, as they unfold. You can see this at first, the Egyptian magicians, we saw this last week actually, the, the Egyptian magicians can replicate what Moses does, but by the third plague they can't. And even they end up owning up to Pharaoh it, quite early on by plague three, that this is the finger of God. They go to Pharaoh and say, mate, we, we can't do this. this. This is the finger of God. Even then Pharaoh doesn't listen. The sixth plague of boils totally incapacitates the magicians and by the seventh plague of hailstones, these Egyptian officials are actually believing Moses and taking precautions because they believe what's coming next. So you can see the escalation even in that. And it's striking to note Pharaoh's evolving and yet still unchanging reactions. At first, we're told that he doesn't care, doesn't even, he doesn't even give it a moment's thought. But gradually, he begins to plead with Moses, and several times he promises to let the Israelites go. But as soon as each plague stops, he changes his mind and says no again. And underneath all the greasy negotiations, Pharaoh remains totally unbending. He has no intention of letting the Israelites go. You can see it as early as the second plague of frogs when Pharaoh saw there was relief. He hardened his heart. And you can see it again in the seventh plague of hail. You can read there in chapter 9 how Pharaoh promises, just make it stop and I'll let the people go. And as soon as it stops... He changes his mind. After the ninth plague of darkness, all the talking finally comes to an end as Pharaoh screams in Moses' face, get out of my sight. Make sure that you never appear before me again. The day you see my face, you'll die. Nine plagues, and that's Pharaoh's parting shot. As a king, Pharaoh is humbled and desperate, and yet hard as nails. Well, that's all we've got time for by way of like overview. So here's my two questions. Number one, how is God's power revealed in these plagues? I want to highlight four ways briefly in which we can see God's power and authority here. So, number one, I want us to underline, first of all, that the whole agenda is in God's hands. It's easy to miss this, but this whole narrative is not in anyone else's hands but God's. It all happens by God's initiative. God chooses the type of plague the order of the plagues, God directs when each one begins, where it happens, and when it ends. Now for Pharaoh, this 
narrative is a massive clash of wills. This, as we said last week, this, this is like Pharaoh against God coming head to head. Um, but I think for us, uh, the questions are possibly different. We, we live in a modern era. We, we, don't, we obviously don't live in ancient Egypt, but we live in an era where it is more common, I think, to assume that life is just the product of random chance. There is nothing ultimate, is, is I think where a lot of people would be. I think some people hope there's more to life than that. But I, I, I think our society assumes that there is nothing ultimate. It is what it is. But I think this narrative points us to a really important and much bigger truth that, in fact, all of history is also in God's hands. That's a bigger agenda than the agenda here. But the fact that this agenda is in God's hands points us to the fact that history itself is not random. That means that every one of our lives and every single one of our days are also in God's hands. I think so often, like Pharaoh, we can be consumed with trying to write our own story. And we're anxious and fretful, perhaps busy and controlling. And sometimes we totally forget that ultimately it is the Lord God who has the agenda in his hands. I also want to just, I want us to see something here too that I want to underline and, and call it something like the sovereign freedom of God. And what I mean by that is that only God can do, only God is free to do whatever he pleases. He, he's not, God, God isn't fighting for supremacy here. This isn't an arm wrestle with an uncertain outcome. God isn't constrained by anything or anyone outside of himself. No one can bargain with him or coerce him. No one backs God into a corner or ties his hands behind his back or thwarts his plans. He is the sovereign Lord who alone can act freely without anyone forcing him to act and without anyone stopping him acting when he wants to act. You get that? He has the agenda in his hands. He is the sovereign Lord. That's number one. Secondly, I think it should be obvious to us that secondly, all of nature is in God's hands. The plagues like trumpet that like... 150 decibels, don't they? In the account of these plagues, it, it, we see that all creation is totally at God's disposal for him to use as he sees fit. Now, it's a good thing that God doesn't do this all the time, every day. It is good, it's a good thing that God ha has ordered creation and we can rely on days and weeks and years and seasons but in this instance, we see that nature is at God's disposal. God can call on animals or the weather. He can make it dark when it should be light. God can order zillions of locusts 
to cause havoc, but at the precise moment when God chooses, they all go. And in chapter 10, it says, there was not one single locust left in all of Egypt. I mean, I wonder whether people were going around looking for them. Not one. Some commentators have tried to explain these plagues away with all kinds of elaborate natural explanations. The river Nile turning to blood causes frogs to come and that makes, you know, there's people who've got elaborate schemes of like how these things all, one went into another. But another important thing to notice here is that after the first set of three, God begins to make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The first set of three plagues all happen to everyone. But in the second set of three, there's a big change from plague five when the swarming flies arrive. Just look with me at chapter eight and uh, look at verse 22. Moses introduces the second set of three, he goes to Pharaoh and in verse 22, he says, but uh, the, the, these flies are going to come. But on that day, God says, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there. Why? So that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. You see what's going on there? It's not as if these are natural phenomena. God even can make them happen in one part of Egypt and not happen where his people live in another part of Egypt. He draws a distinction, and that happens in some of the other plagues too. So God's sovereign power here over nature is not just seen in the fact that God can call upon nature to do his bidding, but also that God alone sets the limits and the boundaries for what happens. Thirdly, um, we see God's power in the fact that human hearts are in God's hands. And by this, I do mean even the hearts of evil human kings like Pharaoh. What a brute Pharaoh is. You, you'll know the Pharaohs prided themselves on their authority as kings in providing for their people and ruling in everything with authority. But this Pharaoh could not stop a single one of these plagues. It was embarrassing for a king not to be able to protect and provide for his own people. That's what kings do, isn't it? His royal human kingliness pales and fades away compared to the divine kingliness of God. I, I think this challenges and humbles our own modern individualism that loves to live as if everything revolves around us. I think Pharaoh here assumes that he's the centre of things, but this story totally decenters him, doesn't it? He discovers very painfully that in reality, things don't revolve around him. They actually revolve around God. Now, this never means that Pharaoh, or any of us for that matter, are not accountable for what we do. 
we are responsible beings. We're not puppets or robots. But this underlines that our human agency is never outside the scope of God's sovereignty. Human choices can never frustrate or derail God's plans. None of what happens here is a plan B for God. And the truth is that without realising it, this wicked tyrant, Pharaoh, is actually ultimately serving God's purposes, even as he fights against God, he's furthering God's plans. All human hearts are subordinate, not ultimate. And all human hearts are in God's hands. He is the one who overrules history, nature, and humanity by his eternal divine power. Fourthly, I didn't know what to call this one, but I, I want to suggest that the spiritual realms too are in God's hands. One final area to think about here is Egypt's religion. And you'll, you'll be familiar with some of this. We, we all study ancient Egypt at school. It's one of the best subjects at school, isn't it? Egyptology. And you, got, you get a trip to the museum to see all the mummies. And um, so we, we, we're kind of familiar with some of this. Egypt was not unique in the ancient world in having complex religious systems. And we, the idea was that the things outside of our human control must be controlled by gods. And these gods, therefore, need to be worshipped and placated in return for providing us with light and fertility and harvest. And these Egyptians, they were polytheists. That means they had many gods. They were also pantheists. pantheists. They believed that these gods were part of and entwined with and one with nature. The Egyptians believed that the River Nile was a god. They believed that the sun was a god. They trusted these so-called gods totally and paid homage to them. But in these plagues, it is as if God is invading their space. God deliberately seems to operate in all the various realms that the Egyptians believe their gods to be in charge and demonstrates his total superiority over all of them. God rules over the river Nile. He makes the sun not shine. He controls the weather and their cattle. He has power over life and death in the way they thought their own gods did. And not once, not one of their gods could respond or save them or, or act. It, it, God, God is showing them that their whole religious system was a fraud. It was a figment of their imagination. And God's purpose here, of course, is not to show off because he's attention-seeking or to prove himself strong because he's somehow insecure. He's bringing them to their senses. God shows by his actions in all these plagues that he alone is the true and living God who is Lord over all things, including Egypt, its king, its people, its land, and even its gods. Now, we, we don't live in ancient Egypt. 
This is a local story, a specific story in a specific time and place. But we do grapple with the question, don't we, of what is ultimate? You lie awake thinking about that night. What is ultimate? Where is ultimate power and authority? Where does that reside? What, what is ultimate that can give meaning to our lives? I, in a way, we, we've considered four possible answers to that question here. Some people would claim that there's nothing ultimate. Others might say nature or the universe itself is ultimate. Some might say that we humans are ultimate. And I think still others would suggest that there has to be more than life than either random chance or nature or just us. And so claim instead that some kind of religious moral framework must be ultimate. But in this narrative, God speaks into this quest. God demonstrates here that life is not random. He holds the agenda. He created all things. He rules over nature. He is the Lord of humanity. And he is the true king over all false gods. Ultimate power resides in God. I think the, the plagues speak of God's power very remarkably. Before we leave this screen and these four aspects of the power of God, here's something just to think about. This is a little light aside. We, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God. And one of the reasons we believe this is that when we encounter Jesus much later in the Gospels, we begin to see that he too displays all of these four things. All the things that God does in Exodus, Jesus appears to do. He masterfully sets the agenda. He too rose over nature, even famously telling a storm to show up and be quiet on one occasion. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Jesus is Lord over all other humans. He has power over demonic forces of darkness who cowered when he spoke to them. The marks of divine activity that we see here are also fully present and gloriously on display in Christ. Think about that. Now, earlier I showed you the escalating intensity of these plagues, but there's another thing that grows as we go through this narrative, and it's the widening scope of God's sovereign rule becoming clearer. And I don't want you to misunderstand me here. It's not that God's authority is growing. It's more that our appreciation of the extent of his authority is meant to be growing. You get the difference. So let me show you four references. This is why you need your Bibles open. Go with me to chapter 7 and verse 17. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. That's a good start, isn't it? I am the Lord. Look down to verse 10 of chapter 8. 
Here God goes a little further. This is to do with the timing. Moses gives Pharaoh the job of deciding what time the frogs will go. And he says, tomorrow. <laughs> He's sick of them. Can you imagine being a king with all the luxury? And every time you try and jump in your hot tub, there's like zillions of frogs hopping around. It must have just like... He, when do you want the frogs to disappear? Pharaoh? Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, okay. Moses replies in verse 10, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. So not just, God's not just saying, I am the Lord. He's saying, I, I alone am the Lord. You see that? Look down with me next at verse 22 of chapter 8. And uh, this is where the distinction comes. On that day I'll deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there. Why? So that you, Pharaoh, will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. God says, in other words, I am the unique Lord even in the backyard of my enemies. <laughs> you see what God's saying to Pharaoh? Egypt isn't close to me, mate. It's not even yours, ultimately. I am the Lord. I alone am the Lord. And I alone am the Lord, even in your own backyard. You think you're in charge here on your own patch? But actually you're not. I am. And then go down to verse 14 of chapter 9. Oh man, the print's so small here. End of chapter, uh, chapter 9, end of verse 14. God says, so you may know, what? That there is no one like me, where? In all the earth. You see what's growing there? The increasing knowledge of the sovereign power and authority of God. I'm the Lord, I alone am the Lord, I'm the Lord even here. In fact, I'm the Lord everywhere. You see that? Growing. This Exodus narrative is teaching us that God is not some kind of impersonal force or an it or a thing. God is not an idea or a moral scheme or an ism of some kind. The God of Exodus is personal. He speaks and he acts and there's not a square centimetre anywhere in any realm where God does not reign supreme and there is no human or spiritual power over which he does not hold sway. I said earlier, this conflict is not an arm wrestle to see who win. The outcome was never in doubt. This is the eternal God who created all things, who sustains all things, and who rules over all things. And here he's working his purposes out. Just want to show you one final thing, and it's this. Later on, Israel when God leads them out of Egypt, they're constituted, if you like, as a nation under God. And later on in the book of Deuteronomy, God speaks to the people as a whole. 
and he begins to ask them some searching questions. And this is so good that I, want, I wanted you to see it, so it's a bit wordy, but this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4. The reference is on the next screen. But let me, let me read this to you. This is God speaking to these people about what happened afterwards, but about what happens. And this is what God says. Ask now about the former days, long before your time. From the day God created man on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another? By testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes. Why? God's good at asking questions. <laughs> Why? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God, and besides him there is no other Wow, this is God explaining Exodus to us. Now the question is why, isn't it? Why is it so important for God's people to know that the Lord is God and besides him there is no other? Why does it matter to God that we know that? God wants his people to know that he alone is God because he alone can save them. Because he alone can keep them. And because he alone rules over all the stormy chaos that we experience. Friends, God wants them to know his power so that they will rest in him. You get that? God wants them to know his power so that they will rest in him. So, our second question then, why is God's power comfort to his people? Let's spend a brief moment thinking about this different question. I think in this world we emphasize power and strength in order to be assertive and in order to get what we want. <laughs> and power, we know, don't we, that power can be terrifying when it's abused. And authority can be horrible when it exploits. And I, that, that idea sums up Pharaoh. That's exactly the kind of king he was. He was a bully. And it's horrible. But in the Bible, God reveals himself not only to be powerful but also to be supremely good and so the power of God expressed in good ways is actually a deeply comforting truth to his believing people and perhaps nowhere is this seen more clearly than in Romans 8 which Gwyneth read to us earlier so let, let's turn there now and we're, we'll finish here in Romans, but in Romans chapter 8, it's on page 1135, if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles. 
I want to draw your attention in particular to verse 31, which says this. It's on the screen as well. Um, Paul says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? The comforting truth of God's power is that if such a God is for us, there is no opposition that can finally crush us. You get that? We have a sovereign protector whose power is expressed in his covenant commitment to his beloved people. His divine and unrivaled power means that there isn't anyone anywhere or anything that can prevent him from being faithful to all the promises he's made James Packer some of you will know the classic book Knowing God and James Packer, in, in that book, Knowing God, remarks on this passage. This is a great quote. What is being proclaimed here in Romans chapter 8 is God's undertaking to uphold and protect us when people and circumstances are threatening, to provide for us as long as our earthly pilgrimage lasts, and to lead us finally into the full enjoyment of himself however many obstacles may seem at present to stand in the way of our getting there. And he concludes with this, the simple statement, God is for us, is in truth one of the richest and weightiest utterances that the Bible contains. Amen? God is for us. Paul here, of course, is seeking to encourage believers who are fearful he knew that there would be people and circumstances and forces and threats that they would be frightened of and so he draws this little word picture in which he lines up all the possible real and theoretical threats on one side in one column and then urges his readers to remember that on the other side in the other column is God, a God of all power. And Paul's argument is, even if only God were on our side, it doesn't matter if absolutely everything else that exists is in this column, because if God is for us, what could possibly be against us? Let me quickly highlight uh, four ways in which God by his power is for you. First of all, God is for you in salvation. Lots of Romans chapter 8. We're, we're not like preaching Romans 8. You can go home and read it this week. Lots of Romans chapter 8 is about salvation. God gives us his righteousness in Christ to cover our sin and guilt. He gives us his spirit to provide inward power and energy. God adopts us into his family in love so that we belong to him. He guarantees our future security and promises to bring us to glory. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation. 
And later on in verse 33, Paul says that there's no accuser anywhere that would cause God to disinherit you because Christ died to make you his own. Secondly, God is for you in life. Other parts of Romans chapter 8 are about living in this unpredictable and broken world. Paul speaks here of troubles and challenges and perplexity and confusion, pain and sorrow, disappointments and losses. He talks about groaning. It isn't that God promises an easy life. And you, you know this, the Christian, Christianity isn't like a bargain where the more religious zeal you put in, the more success and wealth and well-being you get out. No, the point is that God promises to be with you and for you in the difficulties. He promises that he will sustain you and bring you safely through every threat. And that means that when difficulties do come, and they will, it's not a sign that God has abandoned you or forgotten you. And he will be using such experiences to deepen your faith and strengthen you. In verse 28, Paul even says that in all things, hear that, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Thirdly, I want to say God is for you cheerfully. I do love the logic of verse 32 here. Paul argues that if God has given us the best that he can give, which is his son, the Lord Jesus, he will cover everything else. It's like an argument from the greatest to the smallest, isn't it? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give you all things? Do you wonder in your heart if God really loves you? Do you have a lurking fear somehow that he's holding something back from you? Paul says, if God did not spare his own son, this proves that he's more than willing to give you everything else. He isn't stingy and reluctant, but infinitely glad to be generous. He has already blessed you beyond your wildest imaginations by giving you his son. And don't forget, as infinitely precious as Jesus is, this included the horror of the cross. God gave his son to die, to secure your salvation and to win your heart. And again, this truth doesn't mean that God will give us everything we want or everything we think we need but it definitely does mean that God will never withhold from us the things that we truly need God is not a tyrant like Pharaoh he is instinctively and cheerfully and open-handedly generous and lastly God is for you forever in verse 35 Paul presses home his gospel logic by asking another question he's good at asking questions as well isn't he verse 35 who 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 shall separate us from the love of Christ 
the implied answer is that no one or nothing can or ever will. And Paul reaches such a crescendo in verse 38 when he says, for I am convinced. Hear that. I am convinced. What of? That there is no power. Not an angel or a demon or anything else in all creation. Not even the past or the future. There's nothing above us. There's nothing below us. There's nothing in front of us or behind us that can ultimately take us under. And friends, this is my point. The only way this can be true is because there's no power greater than God's power. The unassailable power of God means that nothing can separate you from the love he has for you in Christ forever. We're done. We've seen that the most obvious truth that emerges from the Exodus narrative is the infinite and irresistible power of God. His total command of everything and everyone. But I hope we also see that this same power is lovingly at work to protect and guard his people. And that even includes rescuing us from our own sin and guilt and the judgment we would otherwise deserve through the life and death and resurrection of his son Jesus. The call, friends, of this narrative is to repent of our self-confidence and independence and turn to God in faith, <coughs> calling upon his gracious and powerful name. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing. Father, we are bowed in your presence. We're gathered around your word. We are hearing your voice. And we thank you for this part of the Bible, this foundational spectacular part of your word we thank you for the way it reminds us of your sovereign power but we thank you for the comfort and the hope that it brings to our hearts to know that you are for us if God is for us who can be against us father would you help that truth to sink into our souls to be massaged into our bones would you help us to trust you we pray in the good and precious name of the lord jesus amen <clears throat>